If you were with us last week, uh, we talked about the disciples and their slowness to learn and how often you and I can be just like them. And I thought about what that was like for, for Jesus. I wondered if he ever felt like the, the wife that, that said to her husband, you haven't heard a word I, I just said, did you? And, and the husband says, well, that's a weird way to start a conversation. I wonder if Jesus ever felt like that, like, hey, are you, are, are you guys listening? But today, today we're going to see an exciting turning point, an exciting breakthrough for the disciples, uh, a hinge in this book. And I want to jump into it, celebrate it with you guys. Starts out with some questions that Jesus asked his disciples. We're going to look at uh, Matthew 16 verse 13 and go on down it says when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi now you need to know that's as far north in Israel as you could get the Old Testament tribe of Dan was up there that's as far as they could get away from Jerusalem where the opposition to Jesus was centered at that time and it was beautiful in the background there was Mount Hermon, over 9,000 feet tall, snow most of the year. You might think of like uh, Glacier National Park where our in-laws just got back from, if you've ever been there. Beautiful mountain in the background. But not only that, it was the source of the Jordan River. So you think about that, maybe more locally, you think about a place like Fossil Springs, except maybe minus all the people. You know, you get down that washboard road for an hour and then you get there and there's that beautiful blue water. Just a place to go and relax alone with his disciples. Some have called it kind of a self-imposed exile for, for him and for them. He's got to teach them. He's got to prepare them for what's ahead. And, and to do that, like many good teachers, he's going to ask some questions uh, to get them thinking. And I think about what he's doing with his disciples there, and I want to encourage all of us with the truth that it is very important sometimes to get away from the busyness, to, to get away from the rat race, to sharpen our, our focus on the Lord and, and listen to what he wants to teach us in our lives. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man was one of his favorite names for himself. They knew that's who he was talking about. He's saying, who do people say that I am? Verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You know, they, they kindly left out drunkard, glutton, and Beelzebub. That's what some people thought. But you think about what some people were saying, John the Baptist. We remember that Herod thought he was John the Baptist raised from the dead, right? Elijah, what's that about? Well, the prophet Malachi, 400 years earlier, had said that Elijah would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Some evidently thought that Jesus was not the Lord, but Elijah preparing the way for the Lord. Jeremiah... Jesus did speak with a prophetic voice. He often denounced the sin of Israel's leaders like Jeremiah did. He wept over the people with love. 
Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was rejected like Jeremiah. And what's the deal with all these answers? What ties them all together? They're all nice. They're all complimentary, right? If someone said, hey, that's a prophet, that's pretty nice. But none of them go far enough. None of them go far enough to save anybody. And that's the problem with a lot of answers about who Jesus is even today. There's a lot of nice answers to that question that don't go far enough into who he really is. All of a sudden, the question changes. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? This is like when you're sitting in college class and you're kind of dozing off and then the professor says, Mitchell, what do you think about that? Okay, all of a sudden it's, it's personal, right? It's as though Jesus showed up at your dinner table or your small group and looked around and said, who do you say that I am? And the you is plural in the Greek. He's not just talking to any one person. He's saying you all are down to Texas, Aaron, they say y'all down there still? Yeah, who do y'all say I am? That's what he's saying to them. But Peter, often the spokesperson for the group, is the one that speaks up. We're going to go from question to Peter's confession, not of sin, but, but to proclaim the truth. Verse 16, talk about a breakthrough. Listen to what Peter said. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Well, what is Peter saying here? Well, Christ is the Greek of the Hebrew Messiah. This is the anointed one that the Jews had been waiting for for centuries. Son of the living God. We need to understand that for Jews, that meant he was God as well. Doesn't hit the same in English, but when you say son of God, you're saying he is also God. And son of the living God. That's in contrast to dead gods or gods that were not gods at all, right? And that's really jumps out in Caesarea Philippi because archaeologists and historians tell us that historically there was a temple there for the Greek god Pan. There was also a temple there built for the worship of Caesar himself. It's in that city where Peter proclaims the one and only true God. For Peter, no false God would do. And this reminds me of his words back in John 6. After the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus started talking about eating his flesh and blood, a lot of people took him literally and were, were offended. Listen to what John 6, 66, the, the reference is interesting there. After this, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Could you say that with Peter? I'm not, I'm not turning anywhere else but to you. And before we answer that, I think we need to wrestle with a Kind of a challenging truth. Do you know that anything I turn to more than Jesus, anyone I turn to more than Jesus is an idol? 
Could I say that with Peter? Do these lyrics by disciple reflect your heart? Listen to these lyrics. Every day there's a new serenade that is pulling my ear to the ground. Every hour there's a new voice shouting, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. They go on. They say, you can set your idols all around me and play your sacred sound, but I'll never bow down. No, I'll never bow down. You can take me to the highest mountain and offer me a crown, but I'll never bow down. The blood of Messiah is my torch and my fire, and I won't serve another God. Is that our hearts here today? If Jesus were to look you in the eyes this morning and ask you that question, who do you say that I am? What would your answer be? That was Peter's confession. Now I want to talk about the revelation of God. Verse 17, Jesus heard that answer and answered, And blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. Today I'd be Scott Bar-Donald. That's my dad. Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. That's who he is in the flesh, right? Blessed are you. He used that same word, blessed, in the Beatitudes. Happy, truly happy. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. You catch what Jesus is saying there? It's not that Peter somehow figured out with his own ingenuity or smarts alone, God showed him. God revealed to him who Jesus is. When I think about Jesus, the word made flesh, I also think about the written word of God, God's revelation that points to Jesus. Psalm 119, 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. What a treasure. And it leads us to the question, where's the first place you and I look for truth? I, I hope it's the Bible. Maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with that question, who is Jesus? I'd encourage you, ask him to show you and open this book to the book of John. Say, show me who you are. And read that short book of John. I believe there's tracts out there on the table that have the whole gospel right in there. There's whole Bibles out there if you don't have one. You can take one home. It's yours. Where do you look for truth? And I want to encourage us as we look here. The first question, whether you're alone or in a small group, should never be, what does this mean to me? That can lead all kinds of places. You know what the first question is? What did God say here? And what does God mean here? And then and only then we get to the question, what does that mean for my life? Okay, let's make sure we keep the order straight. We need God's revelation. Now I want to talk about some construction. Any construction workers in here? Not one? Okay, there we go, Drew. He's in the back right. Thank you. I'm going to talk about some construction. Verse 18. Jesus looks at him. As I tell you, you are Peter. 
And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is one of the most controversial passages in the whole Bible. I approach it humbly, seeking the Lord, as I pray you do as well. We've got to talk about some key words here. This word rock, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. What is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church? Getting right to it. For over 1,500 years, the Catholic Church, I said that rock is Peter, and Peter is the first pope. Future popes are descended from him. And if you know Catholic doctrine, you know that the pope is the supreme and authoritative representative of Christ on earth. When the pope speaks ex cathedra, that is in his official role, His words are on the same level as Scripture. And I ask this lovingly because many of us have friends who are Catholics, but just if you look at this objectively, this passage, because they look here to to support that doctrine. Do do you find any of that here? No, you you have to bring something and weave it into what's there. D.A. Carson got right to the point. He said, the text says nothing of Peter's successors. It says nothing of Peter's infallibility. And it says nothing of his exclusive authority. That's not to mention, there are many who believe Jesus wasn't saying Peter was the rock upon which he would build it all. Some people don't believe it's Peter. You say, why? You look at the Greek. There's different words for rock. You are Peter, that's Petros. In early Greek poetry, that could refer to a little stone, Petros. And on this rock, different word, Petra, that can mean rocky mountain, okay? Many have looked at those two words and saying, was Jesus pointing verbally and maybe physically at himself? You're Petros, but on this Petra. I will build my church. Was Jesus pointed at himself? Yes, Peter, what you just confessed about me is true. I am the rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. That whole understanding lines up well with what Peter would later write in his own letter, right? 1 Peter 2, 5, he talks to the believers. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Then he points to Christ in verse 6. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Christ, the cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It lines up with what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 3.11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ lines up with the fact that God himself was often referred to as a rock in the Old Testament. Look up that word on Bible Gateway, Psalm 18:2. the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock 
in whom I take refuge. One scholar pointed out, if, if he really was calling Peter the Pope, like when you get later on in Matthew and Jesus asked, his disciples asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Maybe Jesus wouldn't have brought up a child and said, anyone like a child? He would have said, Peter. <laughs> but he didn't say that. He didn't say that. Another question you got to look at, when you follow Peter's career through the New Testament, do his own actions and words line up with that of someone who, who sees himself as the supreme representative of Christ? Do, do his own actions and words line up with all the pomp and the prestige that goes with the papacy? I don't believe so. Acts 8.14, for example, we see that he respected the authority of the other apostles. It says, the apostles sent him and John to Samaria, and he went. He respected their authority to send him. You look at his letters. How does he refer to himself? 1 Peter 1.1, he says, I am an apostle. One of many, right? 1 Peter 5.1, he calls himself a fellow elder. A fellow elder. Do you see any supremacy there? Not only that, he goes on to talk about his picture of leadership two verses later, talking to elders. In 1 Peter 5.3, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I think part of what's happened, you think of his early days, brash Peter has come a long way. I believe as Jesus continued to shape this vessel, he was humbled. We're going to see Jesus humble him with a rebuke next week. That was a very humbling moment. We're going to see his own denials later in this gospel. That was a humbling chapter. We're going to see Paul's rebuke of him in Galatians 2 that I believe he responded to. and He was likely humbled by that as well. And I think about that. If we let it, life has a way of humbling us sometimes. It reminds me of something I read this week. I don't know if it's true or not, but about a guy that had no kids and he wanted to do a class on parenting. Guy with no kids and the class was called The Ten Commandments of Successful Parenting. Then he had one child, he and his wife, and later on when he offered the class, it changed to five principles of parenting. And they had three more kids and the, the class was changed to a few suggestions about parenting. <laughs> What's going on? He's being humbled as he, as he entered into the real life. Peter preaches the importance of being humbled. In 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And I think about Peter's humility. I think it's good for us to ask the question, are, are we humble in the roles that God has given us? Or, or have they gone to our heads? Important question. Now, when we talk about what this rock is, I would be remiss not to mention that there are some solid scholars. D.A. Carson, some of you may know that name. John MacArthur, most of you know that name. Who believe the little stone explanation I gave above is questionable because it's based on usage in earlier Greek. And if you doubt that languages change, uh, 
just look up the phrase sick of her flowers in the King James Bible and study what it means. Sick of her flowers doesn't mean she's tired of the tulips. Even in English, the the language changes, so they question that interpretation. They believe that Jesus was talking about Peter as the rock upon which the church is built, but not the Pope. Okay, and they believe this for several reasons. One, you cannot deny, if you read Acts 1 through 12, that Peter, by God's grace, played a major role in those early days of the church. You also can't deny that he's listed first every time the the apostles are listed. But I want to encourage you, if you do believe the rock is Peter, just hold on to three boundaries to keep you on track. Number one, if it was him, it wasn't Peter in and of himself, in his flesh. It was who he was as a product of God's grace in his life. Second, it was not Peter alone as some kind of pope above everyone else, but Peter as the spokesperson for the apostles. Think about some of the things we read in Ephesians 2.20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, but you see the important role of the apostles and prophets. Acts 2.42 tells us the early church was devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. And that leads us to the third boundary here. If you believe it's Peter, remember where Peter and all the apostles got their teaching. From Christ himself through the Holy Spirit. That'll keep you on track. So that's the rock. Now I want to talk about another important word here. This is important. This is the first time the word church shows up in this gospel. It shows up here in Matthew 18. And I believe that's the only place in all the gospels. You get to Paul's letters and Acts, you see it everywhere. But the first mention right here. And say, what's it mean? The Greek is, anybody know? Ekklesia. It is an assembly of called out ones. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was used for the assembly of the Israelites summoned to the wilderness by Moses. In Acts, it was sometimes used for an assembly gathered together for a civic matter, an assembly of called out ones. And I believe he's not talking about a particular local church here, but the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. He says, I will build my church. Short phrase, answer should come readily, but I'll ask it anyway. Who builds the church? Jesus. Jesus builds the church. John MacArthur said it this way, it's not faithful believers who build Christ's church, but Christ who builds his church through faithful believers. Now I think about Christ as the builder of the church. I think there's both warning and encouragement here. The warning is the builder reserves the right to demolish any local church he chooses as well. You remember... Revelation chapter 2, he looks at the church at Ephesus. He says, I have something I hold against you. You have left your first love. Remember your first love. Repent, lest I take away your lampstand. And he did. You, You can look at the area where that church was today and see ruins. 
and that causes us to pause. There are times as churches we need to repent, and church repentance starts with individual repentance. It is so important that we go before the Lord regularly and say, Lord, is there any part of my life where I have gone off track, away from your blueprint for the church? Because I do not want to spread something in this body that I love so much that would lead you to take this lampstand away. Is there anything in your life, anything in my life that needs repented of this morning, that needs lined up with the blueprint of the architect and builder, Jesus Christ? Please do not leave here without laying that down at his throne. There's, there's warning, warning, but there's also encouragement. He builds the church. I don't. You don't. Does that mean we're passive? No. It means we trust him. It means we follow his blueprint and leave the results to him. I am so thankful he builds the church because I don't know about you. Sometimes I have trouble building my kids toys on Christmas morning. <laughs> wow. Do you rest in that? That Christ is the builder of his church. Are you trusting him with that? If you struggle to trust him with that, I want to highlight one more word there. I will build my church, he says. If you struggle to trust him with his building the church, I want you to think a minute of how precious the church is to him. He calls it my church. And he purchased it at a price. Acts 20, 28, Paul says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He loves the church enough that he bought it with his own blood. We can trust him to build it. Amen. Next, I want to talk about the gates of hell. The gates of hell says in the ESV shall not prevail against it. Many translations translate this as the gates of Hades. And often in the Old Testament, that is meant to refer to the realm of death. I line up with them and I believe what, what Jesus is saying here, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church that not even the gates of death can hold back the Messiah or, or his followers. You believe that? Think about the crazy promises like in Romans 6, 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Do you believe that nothing, not even death, can keep Jesus from building his church? I pray you do. That's construction. Last part here, I want to talk about delegation. Amazing delegation. Verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine the guys? Wow. Right? And you got to understand the Jewish mindset here. What was he talking about? Keys. Well, they believed the, the religious leaders 
had the keys, the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus referred to this in Matthew 23, 13. They, some of them weren't doing a good job with the keys. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in front of people. For you do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And then you look at Matthew 13 after he tells all these wonderful parables about the kingdom of heaven. And he comes back to that scribe picture. Matthew 13, 51, he looks at his guys and he says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He's saying, I've taught you. And now you're the, the scribes with, with my message. What's this not talking about? It's not talking about Peter standing at the pearly gates. That sparked many a great joke. Like, like I remember the one about a guy who shows up at the pearly gates with a heavy backpack and he gets up to Peter and Peter says, how'd you get that in here? And he says, oh, Gabriel was sleeping back there. And Peter says, let me see what's inside. And it's a bunch of gold bricks. Peter's like, what'd you bring pavement for? Streets of gold, yeah. Guys, it's not talking about Peter at the pearly gates. What does it mean then? I believe it means that Peter, the apostles, and all who carry the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, carry the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's a message as short and to the point as this, John 3, 18, that you and I carry. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see Peter carrying these keys in the book of Acts. Think about Acts 2 where he opened the door for 3,000 Jews as he preached the risen Lord. Acts 8, where he and John went and the Holy Spirit came upon the Samaritans. Acts 10, where he goes to a Gentile centurion named Cornelius' house. And Christ comes there. And then he defends these moves of God before those who oppose them. In Acts 11 and 15. You and I carry those same keys today. And I wonder, do, do we realize it? There's, there's people that you know and that I know that right now are locked on the side of a door that leads to an eternity in hell. And of course it's Jesus that's the door, and of course it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates them, but you and I hold the precious message that they need so desperately. What a privilege. He goes on, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I'm going to be bold here. I'm going to tell you something, that a whole world of false teaching has grown around this verse. There's a whole group of people who read this verse and believe they can demand their wishes of God and make him do it turning him essentially into a genie at their disposal. 
Sometimes they say words like this, I I bind this sickness and loose health here. I I bind this poverty and loose wealth here. Now listen, can God work in those situations? Absolutely. My question is, what about those moments where it's not his will? Talk like this is the kind of stuff that can turn someone away. Because you speak like that and it doesn't happen. And often you don't get the blame. You know who does? God gets the blame. I want to lovingly warn us to be careful with this verse. And I believe part of what's misunderstood here is the tense of the words in this verse. It's a perfect tense. And I want you to listen how the New American Standard Bible translates these verses. Believe they get it right. Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Past. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Past. What's that mean? We can only bind and loose what has already been bound or loosed by God in heaven. As one man put, it's not talking about man's will being done in heaven. It's talking about God's will being done on earth. Do we understand the difference? This this binding and loosing, again, we go back to the scribes. Sometimes one scribe would look at a situation and say, I bind you in this situation. That meant you can't do that. Another scribe would say, no, go ahead, you're loosed. You go ahead and do that. They could forbid and, and permit. And here's the wild thing. As we spread the the good news of Jesus, we also get to share the binding and loosing of what a walk with him looks like. Matthew 28, 20. We don't just lead people to Christ. It says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You teach people to observe what Jesus has said. Contrary to a popular lie today, that is not legalism. It is obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. That's part of the message, the walk. But we also see this in in relation to forgiveness, this binding and loosing as we share the good news of the gospel. John 20, 23, he looks at them, says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. What's he saying? As you preach the gospel, those who believe are going to be saved, and those who don't are condemned. Lastly, it applies to church discipline. And this phrase is important here because sometimes that's abused. It applies to church discipline as we follow God's plan for order in his church. Matthew 18 walks through it, but at the end of that discipline procedure, he says in Matthew 18, 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you realize the amazing privilege of the keys that we carry as believers? What are we doing with them? As I go back over the passage and prepare to close, I I think it's good just to say, thank you, Lord, for this breakthrough. Thank you that you're still working on those today through what you've revealed in your word. 
And I want to close us with an invitation and a challenge. One is, this time alone was so important for the disciples. Because looking around on this plane, things were not going as they expected them to go. Jesus was being rejected. The hopes of him defeating the Romans and bringing in the earthly kingdom now were were fading. And he's just about to tell them next week about his death on the cross and his resurrection. So he took this precious time away and alone with them to have a conversation with them to prepare them. We need that sometimes. Think about the fact that there is no good in running ourselves ragged if it's taken us further and further from the Lord. So I want to ask you, would you commit to an hour or two alone with him this week? If so, I'd encourage you this afternoon, start by setting the time and place. Put it on on your calendar. And thinking of the disciples here, I, I want you to ask yourself a question. Where in your life are things not going as you expected? Maybe write down the issue or, or thing you're struggling with. And when you go, take your Bible, take that question to the Lord and ask him to reveal himself and his ways to you in the middle of that. And as he leads you, write down what he shows you. And for those of you so bold, I'd encourage you to take the next step of of sharing with one another what God did in that time this week, encouraging one another as the day draws near. Lord, I thank you for your love for your disciples, both past and present. I thank you for the revelation of the Father through your word, through Jesus Christ. I thank you for the truth that you build your church, and we can trust you completely with that. Help us follow your blueprint in the spirit. Help us repent anywhere we're not. Jesus, you are the chief shepherd, the the great shepherd, the, the head of the church. We want to bring you glory and honor. You are the king of kings and lord of lords. You're the son of the living God the Messiah. It's your name we pray.